0: The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised.
1: This episode of the Urban Forestry Radio Show has been brought to you by Stark Brothers Nurseries and Orchards, two centuries of fruit tree expertise. (laughs) Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show.
0: Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan Live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com.
1: It's December 31st and the dawn of a new year and a new decade. What's your New Year's resolution? Some people decide they're going to go to the gym every day. Others say they want to read more books and expand their minds. And fruit tree growers like us, well, for many of us, our goal in 2020 is going to be to learn how to care for our fruit trees more effectively. And Lord knows fruit trees can be a handful. You plant them with lots of love and hope, and then they go and catch every fruit tree disease that's going around. Or they get hit by a swarm of this year's newest and scariest fruit tree pest, which makes a mess of the tree and destroys a good part of your harvest to boot. And people think children are high maintenance. Well, in this episode of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, we're going to talk about one piece of the fruit tree care puzzle. And that's the use of organic fruit tree sprays. Now, I know folks who would just go to the garden center and find a spray that says fruit tree spray, and they might just use it whenever, whether it's appropriate or not. Even if it's organic, misuse of that spray may actually damage your tree, your health, and the environment too. But in this show, we're going to get into a little bit more detail. You see, most sprays are only effective and safe when you use them in the right conditions and at certain times in the growing season. So we're going to talk about that today with orchard consultant Mike Biltonen. Mike has horticulture degrees from Virginia Tech and Cornell, as well as over 35 years of practical farming experience. His focus is on working with orchardists who want to grow their crops more holistically. Mike lives in the Finger Lakes region of New York. Now, fruit tree sprays are just one tool in your toolbox when it comes to protecting your trees. You can learn about lots of other tools in my award-winning fruit tree care book, Growing Urban Orchards. So I'm offering a copy of my book, valued at $19.95, as a prize for today's contest. To enter the contest, just send us an email during the live show to instudio101 at gmail.com with a question for my guest or a comment, or you can just write us to say hi. Everybody who emails during the show today will be entered into the contest, and we will choose our winner at the end of the show. So send your email right now if you want to instudio101 at gmail.com, and remember to include your first name, and where you are writing from. So now let's dig into today's topic with Mike Biltonen, who is on the line right now. Mike, welcome to the show today. Thank you. So Mike, when you are working, you're an orchard consultant, and when you are working with your clients, what role do do sprays play in terms of protecting fruit trees from pest and disease?
2: Well, they play a very important role. There's a quite a few uh, insect and disease pests um, that vary throughout the growing season, which, depending on what part of the continent or world that you're in, can begin uh, in late March to early April, say, in the uh, Great Lakes region, and last until October and even into November uh, in some cases. And so being able to understand what these insects and diseases are um, and how to help your trees withstand the onslaught uh, that can occur from time to time, year to year, uh, it's really important. And so doing nothing uh, is not really an option in our climate today, um, and, but by the same token, it doesn't have to be super intensive. As long as we're choosing the right sprays for the right time of the year for the right insect and diseases, it really can help grow a healthy tree and healthy fruit.
1: So you say doing nothing is not an option. And so d- describe to me what can happen if we just leave our trees and just don't don't use any sprays at all?
2: Well, probably the biggest thing that can happen uh, from a disease standpoint is the trees can get a number of diseases, apple scab, cedar apple rust. Um, there's a new one that we're dealing with called marcenina leaf blotch, which if they get severe can actually defoliate the tree, and if the tree defoliates, and this usually has started to happen uh, in late July and through through August, um, probably two or three months before the tree would naturally drop its leaves, um, if the tree defoliates, then it can't photosynthesize, and if it can't photosynthesize, then it can't create the sugars and the nutrients and the compounds that it needs to stay healthy as a tree or to grow good fruit. And by the same token, uh, on the insect side, there are insects that um, can not just you know, damage the tree, but could, can actually kill it. Um, there's borers of different types that will bore into the trunks or the twigs of the tree um, that, if severe enough, can, can girdle it and eventually just cause the tree to decline. It's- so if we, if we don't do anything, um, chances are that something will happen. Um, and that over, you know, it could happen quickly, but usually it happens over the course of a few years to where the, tr- the trees can just decline and die.
1: And also, if you are growing your trees in an urban environment or where they're they more, you know, they're closer together to other trees, these problems spread really quickly from tree to tree. So if one neighbor in a neighborhood is growing a fruit tree and they let it go, all the other trees in the neighborhood will come down it, with the, the same problem. Is that true?
2: Um, they can, yeah. It can spread fairly quickly, and that's particularly true in the case of bacterial diseases um, and some insects that, that multiply quickly uh, and can, can move fairly quickly in either the wind or the rain or just fly from tree to tree. So yes, proximity is very important.
1: Now, why is it important to do your research before you even go out and buy the sprays? You know, like, why do you need to know what's going on with your tree?
2: Well because the well one um is that not every region uh ha and it doesn't have to be a large geographic region it could be from you know uh, you know in New York, for example, the issues that we have in the primary fruit growing regions along along Lake Ontario were different from what they would have say on a, on the Ontario Peninsula versus the Hudson Valley versus the mid atlantic region of the u s um, you know we don't all have the same pressures, and so understanding what your pressures are from, you know, the insect and diseases um, is very important, but the other thing is that once you've got a handle on on those basics, understanding the ebb and flow through the growing season of when certain diseases are problematic and when they're not, when certain insects are problematic and when they're not um, is important because that's going to help guide you to understand you know one if you need to spray anything and then two how to choose the most appropriate spray mhm and that can change dramatically throughout the growing season from times when very little intervention is needed to other times where it can be fairly um intensive
1: mhm that makes sense we have an email from walter walter says hello susan happy new year to you and your staff a very nice topic today i can't wait until apple season again No questions, just wishing all of you a very happy new year. P.S. listening from Calgary, Alberta. Thank you, Walter. That's nice to hear from you. So let's dive in to, we're going to do this season by season. and, And for this first chunk of the show, let's talk about the dormant season. So Mike, what does that mean? When does the dormant season begin for fruit trees? And when does that end?
2: Well, uh, the dormant season technically begins at the end of a current growing season. So, you know, as soon as a tree, you know, the fruit's been harvested and the leaves are fully defoliated and all of those carbohydrate reserves have gone into the roots and the trunk and the branches of that tree, um, that tree is essentially dormant at that point. Um, It needs to achieve a certain amount of chilling units or cold days before um, it could possibly start to grow again. Now, the dormant season will extend from, we'll just pick a random time of, say, the middle of November, all the way up until the middle of March. Um, and then in the middle of March, it starts to accumulate growing degree days warm during, during warm days. And even though we won't see the tree start to grow, and it will still look very dormant and asleep, um, and for all intents and purposes it is, it is slowly starting to wake up, in the same way that with maple trees, you know, the sap starts to rise before the leaves come out. That sap, those carbohydrates, are starting to rise again. But we see the real end to the dormant season when the bud scales on the overwintering fruit buds start to expand slightly, and we can see a change in color in the bark and in the buds. And that, you know, even though there's not a defined period per se of when the dormant season ends, that's really when we can say, okay, it's game on that the the growing season has started.
1: Okay. So you said there's not really one exact time. So it's not when the buds start to swell or as soon as the buds are open, dormant season is over. There's nothing that specific if we're analyzing our tree rather than looking at our calendar.
2: Yeah, there's certainly not a calendar date, but yeah, once the, actually when the buds do start to swell, when you see that change in the color you know, you can say that dormant season is over, and we've started that growing season.
3: Gotcha. But That
2: could vary from year to year. I've seen it uh, in New York, where, you know, we've had the dormant season end in, or appear to end in early March, um, only to have more winter set in, and in other years where it stays relatively cool or cold through March, um, and the trees may not look like they're waking up until, you know, early to the, to the middle of April, even.
1: Wow, big difference. We've got a couple of emails here. One's from Aldo, just listening for the first time. Aldo says, I often spray fruit trees with a combination of sulfur, lime, and copper mixtures, but don't have much success. So uh, where's Aldo from? He doesn't say, but thank you, Aldo. We are going to talk about those things in just a moment. And let's see, was there one more email? perhaps and then we will dive in yep okay and Eamon says hello are there any natural pesticides for apple trees thanks happy new year from El Paso Texas thank you Eamon so we will also talk about natural pesticides but now we so we're talking about the dormant season and we have our questions here um, how are we going to protect our trees in the dormant season, and why is this a good time to protect the trees? So what would you say about that, Mike?
2: Well, just like the trees are sleeping and recovering you know, during the winter, so are a lot of insects and diseases in, in their own way. Um, they're going through a dormant period of their own, and many of these insects and diseases will do their winter rest, you know, on the tree itself. And some examples of those might be some mites or scales, woolly apple aphids, uh, some diseases, particularly bacterial bacterial diseases like fire blight. um, You know, they they will be residing on the tree itself. And so we want to be aware of that. And in order to reduce the, the, the pest pressure or the disease inoculum when the season starts, treatments that we can apply that we need to think about um, that will help to reduce the population, say, of overwintering mite eggs or overwintering scale. And by getting a jump on the season, it reduces the potential for those pests um, and diseases to be bigger problems in season um, than they, you know, than than they would be if we didn't do anything.
1: So let's go through a list. In the dormant season, what are our options? And we had one person write in who mentioned copper and lime sulfur. And uh, Eamon writes in about natural pesticides. Give us a list of what are our options in the dormant season and when would we opt for those different uh, choices? Well,
2: one of the most classic options is just a horticultural oil. And the horticultural oil would be applied... Um, in, in a dilute spray, and by dilute I mean, uh, you know, maybe one to two percent oil in water, and that would be applied to the entire surface of the tree. And what the oil does is it essentially smothers the mite eggs, or the scale, or the woolly apple aphids. Um, and that's one of the more classical um, op- uh, options that's available um, quite easily to anybody. Um, you can also add in uh, or include some other sprays, copper being one of them, um, lime sulfur would be another, um, and also neem oil and karanja oil, uh, which are seed oils from trees in India, have also become very popular. They act differently than horticultural petroleum oils, um, and they actually have some added benefits for the, the health of the tree, but. You know, those are the, in the dormant season, those are the basic options that we're dealing with to help with these overwintering insect and disease pressures.
1: And so if you are, like, how would you know when to use copper versus when to use lime sulfur? Uh, how, how do you make these decisions when you're working with orchards?
2: Well, so copper is very, uh, very good against bacterial diseases like fire blight um, or bacterial canker. There's other types of fungal cankers that are out there. Uh, it's also a good fungal protector, but it, it's much better as a bacterial um, treatment. Lime sulfur is much better as a fungal treatment, um, the sulfur being like one of the primary components in that, obviously, um, and not so good against bacterial. So understanding, you know, If you you have a history of fire blade in your orchard or if you've had a history of fungal infections in your orchard, you may opt for one of the other. Um, As a prophylactic, you certainly could apply both um, and at the appropriate rate, um, you could kind of cover all bases. And if you didn't know what your problems were, that might be the most appropriate um, approach. But again, knowing what your problems are from year to year you know, maybe one year you're applying copper and the next year you're applying lime sulfur, um, you know, to just depending on what your issues are. And the other thing is that lime sulfur is also uh, very good at controlling uh, overwintering mite eggs. So it has a strong impact um, as a, mitocy- a, a dormant season miticide as well.
1: Interesting. So actually, Bryce writes us, and his timing is perfect. Bryce says, hi, we always hear about fire blight. What is that exactly? And uh, Bryce is from Maysville, Georgia.
2: So fire blight is a, it's a bacterial disease. Um, it's of worldwide significance in pome fruit, which is primarily apples and pears. Um, but it also can infect hawthorn and raspberries and other plants in the rosaceous family. Um, the scientific term is Erwinia or- uh, Um It was originally identified first, and we think that it actually started in the Hudson Valley of New York, so that's our little gift to the planet.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, and uh, fire blight is a bacterial disease that actually moves systemically or in the vascular system of the plant. The most important point of entry is through the blossoms in the spring. But you can also get infections um, through uh, leaves uh, or branches, say, after a hailstorm or a heavy windstorm. So it can enter through any type of opening you know, in the tree itself. But, again, the most important entry point is in the, in the springtime during bloom when it can enter through the flowers. Um, and then once it starts to spread systemically, it not only will kill, it could kill the flower, but it can kill the spur, which is what the fruit bud is is born on. Um, it can infect the branch and in very severe cases it can actually kill the tree. And there's some varieties which are much more susceptible to fire blight than others, and there are some roots apple rootstocks which are much more susceptible to fire blight than others.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. And that's a great question uh, from Bryce and and um what you would see, and sadly we've had it here in Toronto and it's been it's spread. There's some years that are worse than others. You see that the, the branches sort of look burnt out and they curve like a hook. Sometimes people look at the tree and they think, oh, this tree is okay, it just needs more water. No, it's got fire blight. So it's an awesome thing if you've got fruit trees, in particular apple, apple and pear trees, Google some pictures of what a fire blight-affected uh, tree would look like so that when, if and when it happens, you can recognize it.
2: Yeah, and that's a good point because symptomatically... Um, You know, fire blade is exactly what you described, and it looks like the tree has been scorched or there was a fire. But the other thing to realize is that you can have infected tissue on the tree that is not symptomatic with the infection. And so one of the cultural techniques for controlling fire blade is actually to cut out the infected branches. But when you do that, you need to cut beyond what you actually see by maybe about 16 inches. So if you have a, a shoot or a branch that's a you know 36 inches long, um, you know the you want to cut 16 inches below the last visible symptom of that to make sure that you remove all of the infected material. Because if you're just cutting through um, non-symptomatic infected tissue, it's going to continue to spread in that tree.
1: Absolutely. By the way, there's a little clicking on the line. I'm not exactly sure where that's coming from. But sorry about that, guys. Um, Okay, so we've got an email here from Norm in Toronto. What are the benefits of neem oil? And also, can I just buy it from my local Indian grocery, as opposed to from the garden center? As I heard, it is cheaper. Would it be the same stuff? So that's from Norm about neem oil.
2: Yeah, so neem is a very interesting uh, material to use. uh, Pure neem oil Uh, originates from the neem tree in India, and in its sort of unadulterated um, uh, shape, it has a consistency of peanut butter, and it doesn't begin to liquefy until it gets up above 60 degrees or so. And so what's happened is is that manufacturers of of horticultural products um, have started to strip out some of the... Um, constituents that create this very viscous um, texture at low temperatures, and what's left are products that are not referred to as neem strictly, but as like azadiractins. And there's a number of different azadiractin products that are out on the market. Some are consumer, comer, some are um, you know more commercial uh, products. You still get a lot of the benefit. Um, that you would get from using pure neem oil, and you get a, a real advantage given that it's much easier to use. It mixes with water much easier, uh, whereas neem oil, there's a whole process that you have to go through to make sure that it's um, emulsified into the, sp- the spray water quite well. So the, that's the long answer. The short answer is is that um, it's going to be cheaper. It's not going to have everything that pure neem oil Um, gets with it, um, but it's going to be a lot easier to use. And yes, you will get benefit from it.
1: So what are the benefits of neem oil? So we talked about how copper helps with bacterial diseases. uh, Lime sulfur helps with fungal. Um, We talked about dormant oil is great for smothering insects. Where does neem oil fit in here in our um, dormant uh, season spraying?
2: So neem oil brings a number of properties with it you know of course you you get the oil so like a horticultural petroleum oil you're going to get the smothering effect on mite eggs and scale and and the like um but you also get a number of constituents you know fatty acids being one of them um that are really important for feeding the microbiome that's on the surface of that tree and that's you know a good way to help build the biological robustness of the orchard that provides additional protective benefits to get benefits against diseases um, and insect invasions as well. Um, but you also have this very interesting insect growth regulator uh, characteristic from Neem that um, helps to debilitate, reduce the development of over, other overwintering insects that are on the tree and so, you know, like with moths and butterflies, they go from um, a larval stage to a pupal stage to, or I'm sorry, an egg to a larva to a pupa to an adult. So they have to go through these different life stages, and the insect growth-regulating properties of neem oil help to reduce the success rate um, of those those types of overwintering insects. Um, other insects, such as as aphids and leafhoppers, they don't go. They go through different instars, which are just larger versions of the you know, the previous previous versions. So basically, the baby aphids look about the same as the adult adult aphids, except they just get bigger. They as well can help to reduce, you know, the development of those different instar stages. So you get three primary benefits. You get the oil, which is you know an insecticidal. Uh, You get the fatty acids, which feed the microbiome on the tree. You get the insect growth regulating properties um, that help to reduce the success rate of certain insect species that might be overwintering on the tree.
1: So does timing matter? You've given us a selection of a bunch of different options. Um, would I, you know, does timing matter? Should it be early in the dormant season? Should it be late? Should we do one spray on a Monday, the next spray on a Tuesday, and the next on the Wednesday? How do you consider, uh, when to time your spraying in the dormant season?
2: Well, um, basically, you know, especially when it comes to oils, um, or copper, you know, and lime sulfur, um, each of those products, you know, individually but also together, if they're applied when there's, you know, foliage on the tree, you can get what's, what are, what's called phytotoxicity. So you can get damage or burning of the leaves. And if it's even later than that, you could potentially get um, burning of flowers or russeting of the fruit. And so, you know, if you know that you have a mite problem or a scale problem, applying the, those materials, you know, earlier in the dormant season. And so we'll say, like, you know, m- mid-March, mid to late March or so, um, yes. you can apply them at a higher rate and have a higher, a greater impact on those pest species populations. The, the sooner we get to that bud swell, bud break, and what we call green tip, which is when you start to see the very, very first hints of green tissue emerge, we need to reduce the rates so that we don't cause any phytotoxicity problems you know, in the tree itself. And so by reducing the rates, you know, we're obviously going to have less efficacy against um, some of those insect and disease pests. Um, But as well, um, those pests are starting to wake up and they become more susceptible. So there's a little bit of a sweet spot, and, and I don't like to recommend applying anything too early in the dormant season. Um, I also don't want to apply it too late because then, you know, we have to reduce the rates too much. So somewhere right around what we call delayed dormant, so just as the buds start to swell, but before there's that green tissue, that's really the sweet spot of, you know, when you want to apply these for the uh, most efficacy. Now you can, what we call tank mix, you can put, you know, each of these materials in a tank together but you don't want to put them all in the tank together. So you could apply copper and oil, or you could apply uh, copper and lime sulfur together. Um, And I would, when we're using materials like that, I usually recommend waiting um, about a week in between each one. Oil can increase the potential for phytotoxicity. Um, It can also increase the efficacy of each of those materials. And so if you're tank mixing, you know, or mixing any of those together, um, you want to be aware that giving giving them time to dissipate on the surface of the tree is important before coming back and applying another.
1: I just want to confirm here. So you said you can mix some of the things together. So you can mix uh, horticultural oil with copper. Then you said you could mix copper with lime sulfur. Did you mean you could mix lime sulfur with... Horticultural oil, or can you actually put lime sulfur with copper? Because I thought I understood that those two don't don't get along.
2: Copper and lime sulfur. Yeah. No, you can, Um, and I've applied them together. You know, before Um, we do it in blueberries quite a bit.
1: Okay, okay, great. So basically, for those of you, and we're just going to go on to our next season in a minute after our commercial break, but. So for those people who are a little queasy about mixing their chemicals, you just don't know what's going to happen, um, <clears throat> why should they be careful? Like what is it, why should you do your research first before you just randomly mix your, your different ingredients together in your sprayer?
2: Well, um, particularly when, when oils or other caustic materials like lime sulfur or, you know, even copper are involved, um, you want to make sure that you avoid any issues where you're actually damaging the plant. I mean, we're we're applying these, and when used properly, they can uh, provide a lot of benefit, both from a nutritional standpoint, but also you know mostly from an insect and disease standpoint. So we just want to be aware of what the interactions are between you know each of these materials, and so you know you don't there's not always a need to be able to uh, to have to mix. Uh, different materials, you can certainly separate them out, um, but you want to be aware that there can be these synergistic, um, negative synergistic uh, you know, impacts by m- mixing different materials together. And then the other reason is that there's lots of different formulations that are out there. I mean, there are a lot of commercial um, uh, formulations that are out there, and there's a lot of uh, consumer over-the-counter formulations that are out there. And they're not all the same. Now, the consumer ones are generally formulated so that they're safe and easy to use, and there's a a low risk with with using that. But still, if they're mixed inappropriately, um, you know, you you can get precipitates. um, You can get these negative reactions like mixing oil with copper and applying it at the wrong time of the year. Um, So understanding what your problems are, what you really need to treat, and what the interactions are between each of these materials is really critical.
1: That's awesome. Well, how about this? In just a minute, let's continue on. We'll talk about uh, blossom time and what sprays, if any, we would use then. But let's hear a few words from our wonderful sponsors. Mike, can you stay on the line for just a minute? Absolutely. Wonderful. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show brought to you by Stark Brothers Nursery and Orchards. This is RealityRadio101.com, and I'm Susan Poisner, author of the award-winning fruit tree care book, Growing Urban Orchards. And we'll be back right after this little break.
4: Stark Brothers is primarily a direct-to-consumer marketer of fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees. We do this on a national basis. We're the largest as far as what we do, and we've been doing it for 200 years. Company started in 1816 when James Hart Stark brought his family and a satchel full of apple science across the Mississippi River, settled here in what is now Louisiana, Missouri. The big first apple for Stark Brothers was the Red Delicious apple and it started in 1893 and then 20 years later in 1914 the Golden Delicious apple was mailed to the facility here. Two-thirds of all the apples eaten in the world today are cousins of these two apples. Essentially they have the DNA of the Red Delicious or Golden Delicious apple in their DNA. We have about eight acres of warehouses and we have between 350 and 400 acres of field production going on every year, which is split into two crops, the crop you're budding and the crop you're selling. We have about five acres of greenhouses.
1: We offer a wide variety of product. We're growing woody fruit trees, small fruits, raspberries, blueberries, knockout roses, kiwis. There's always a new product coming out or a new
2: technique.
4: E-commerce has changed our business model completely, and we recognize we're open 24-7, and the customer wants their merchandise faster and sooner than they ever have. What works well with us is that, one, we're centrally located. That 75% of our customer base is within two days' time in transit. We'll send an email on a Monday, and if you place your order today or tomorrow, you'll be planting this weekend.
1: Stark Brothers Nurseries and Orchards. Learn more at starkbros.com. Hi everyone, congratulations on investing in a new fruit tree. Fruit trees are a blessing. With just a bit of skilled hands-on care, they can give you plenty of delicious organic fruit for years to come. I'm Susan Poisner, an urban orchardist from Toronto, Canada, and over the years I've learned that how we care for our trees when they're young will determine their success and productivity in the long term. If you do want to learn more, there's lots more that I would love to teach you like how to prune fruit trees of all shapes, ages and sizes, how to optimize tree health, and various different ways to protect your trees from pests and disease. So check out my website at OrchardPeople.com where you can watch free videos and read great blogs about growing fruit trees. Or you can check out my online certificate in beginner fruit tree care, where in just eight hours, including fun and informative videos, interactive quizzes, and information-packed ebooks, you can learn how to keep your tree healthy and productive for years to come. Happy Growing from OrchardPeople.com.
0: Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board, send us an email right now. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner.
1: You're listening to the New Year's Eve edition of the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast, brought to you by Stark Brothers Nursery and Orchards. This is Reality Radio 101, and I am your host, Susan Poisner, author of the award-winning fruit tree care book, Growing Urban Orchards. In today's show, we're talking about organic fruit tree sprays throughout the season, And we're learning how you can start developing developing your own fruit tree spray schedule. My guest on the show today is orchard consultant Mike Biltonen of Know Your Roots, a consulting business based in New York State. In the first part of the show, we talked a bit about the options for sprays that you can use on fruit trees during the winter dormant season when our trees are bare with no leaves, blossoms or fruit. But when the weather starts to warm up and the, the trees get ready to blossom, what sprays can or should we use? That's what we're going to talk about in this part of the show. Now, just to remind you, organic sprays are just one of many different ways that you can protect your trees from pests and diseases. And you can learn lots of other ways in my fruit tree care book, Growing Urban Orchards. If you are listening to this show live today, you can actually enter our contest to win a copy of my book, which is valued at nineteen ninety-five. To enter the contest, just write us an email during the show today with your question or comment or just to say hi. Send that email to instudio101 at gmail.com. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. And do remember to include your first name and where you are writing from. So, Mike, I just got an interesting email here from Tara. Uh, Tara says, uh, she titles it, Can you elaborate, if possible, apricot uh, apricot tree spray schedule? So um, she says, Hi, all. Appreciate your response. Blessings for 2020 from Tara. So in terms of the sprays that we talked about for our dormant sprays, are any or all of them appropriate for apricot trees as well?
2: Uh, yes, and particularly in the case of stone fruit, of which apricots are a member, um, they can get uh, bacterial and fungal diseases that apples don't get. And so the use of copper uh, and lime sulfur in the dormant season can be particularly uh, important to maintaining the long, health, uh, long, long healthy life for apricots.
1: So that's good. And always, by the way, Tara, always read the packaging. Some packages, uh, we've got a lime sulfur here, uh, package mix here in Canada that says specifically do not apply to apricot trees, and maybe other trees are okay. So what whichever choice you guys make in terms of what we're teaching you guys today, always read the packaging. So apricots okay so now let's talk about blossom time mike how do we define what blossom time is when it starts when it ends and what should we be spraying during blossom time
2: well so blossom time so the, the flower itself is developed in the previous season so the flowers that we're going to see in a few months were are actually and we're speaking about apples um those flowers were developed last June and July. So they've been sitting in the tree um, benefiting from the growth. The, they're going through their dormant season right now. And when the tree starts to grow, that tissue will begin to differentiate um, into the various flower parts. Now, if you have a compound microscope, you can see this at the various stages. But for your average you know, backyard gardener or orchardist, um, you're really not going to start to see um, the beginnings of the flower until what we call um, half-inch green, which is a it's a phenological stage. And at that stage, you can start to see the the flower really begin to to swell up, and it looks different from vegetative buds, which don't have any flowers attached to them, um, simply because it's just bigger and plumper. And the next stage after that is going to be a, a stage that we call tight cluster. And at that point, the leaves have started to unfold, and the flower parts have, have pushed open. Now, it's still not a viable flower. It can't be pollinated. It can't begin to develop fruit because um, it's not fully differ- differentiated. But depending on the weather, that could be anywhere from you know a week to two weeks, um, when we start to get the first what we call open blossoms. And that's when the petals and the sepals of the flower start to open up, and you can see the pistil and the anthers, which are the the fruit-bearing and the pollen parts of the flower um, that are inside of it. And at that point, when you start to see the flowers really open, that's what we can call bloom time, the beginning of bloom time. Now, not all flowers will open at the same time, so the first flowers may precede full bloom by a full week. Um but typically, you know, uh, in early to mid-May, depending on where you're located again, um, you can see these first blossoms start to open. And then in central New York here, uh by the by the middle to third week of May, we're definitely in full bloom. Further downstate in the Hudson Valley, it could be earlier in May, to the second week in May, so they could precede us by maybe 10 days to two weeks even. But bloom time is when those first blossoms start to open, the petals are open, the, the, the flower can be pollinated, um, fertilization can take place, fruit development can begin. Um, and then full bloom is when 90% of the flowers are open. And then bloom time ends, and that bloom time will depend on, on the weather. So it's really hot and dry and windy. It could be done in a matter of days, or if it's you know, relatively cool, um, and the weather's very nice, um, that bloom period can last anywhere from two and even up to three weeks long. But once it's over, then the flower will shed those petals, and that period, that phenological stage is what we call petal fall. And at that point, we can really start to see the receptacle in the, the, the flower begin to expand, and we can see the very first beginnings of uh, fruit development.
1: That's fantastic. It's a perfect explanation to help us understand that we're looking at the changes in the tree to decide what to spray and when to spray. So when those blossoms are open, do we spray anything or are they just too delicate that we should just leave them alone and say, this is a no spray zone?
2: Well, uh, the, in a, in a, and, there, of course, with climate change, that there's nothing normal about any year from year to year. But, you know, in a more normal year where we don't have excessive heat or a lot of rain or that kind of stuff, you know, typically I like to say that, you know, it's best if you can avoid spraying anything because the flowers um, are delicate, um, you know, and if you spray the wrong thing or spray the right thing at the wrong time, um, you can damage those flowers and really have a serious impact on... Uh, on your ability to grow a crop of apples. Now, that said, there are a number of insect and diseases that need to be considered and that growers need to be aware of because they can be particularly um, nasty during the bloom period, Uh, fire blight being one of them. Uh, As we mentioned earlier, that's when the tree is at its peak susceptibility for fire blight. Now there are conditions that need to occur in order for the tree to be susceptible to fire blight, but nonetheless, it's one that we need to be aware of. And insect pests, um, probably the most nefarious uh, is the European apple sawfly, which can in, can uh, infest the flower. The female lays the egg at the base of the, the flower right below the petals. Um, and then you get these this larval development, which you know kills it. And then Oriental fruit moth can be another one, though it's not necessarily as serious as, as uh, European apple flies. So if you can avoid spraying things, that's best, but you also need to be aware that there are things that can impact your apple crop and you may need to spray either right before full bloom or in the case of fire blight, sometimes you need to spray during full bloom.
1: And what would the option be for fire blight? If you know you've got fire blight in your orchard, some of the trees have been hit. You can see that it's going to spread very easily, perhaps because the weather is damp or windy or whatever. What would you spray on those open blossoms to protect your trees from uh, fire blight?
2: Sure. Well, there's there's a number of options. Um, now, you know we talked about copper during dormant. There are copper sprays that you can apply during bloom, but they're not the same copper formulation that you would use during the dormant season. So they're gonna be safer to use against the flowers. Um, and the copper itself is a bactericide. It helps to reduce the uh, bacterium that are on the surface of the, the flower particularly, but on the, the plant overall, um, and can reduce the potential for infection um, Bonide makes a, a copper spray, which is um, a copper uh, octanoate, um, a 10% solution, and if you used according to label, you know it can successfully reduce your chances for getting fire blight. Um, another product that I like to use, and it's, the commercial name is Double Nickel. There are a variety of off-the-shelf products, um, but Double Nickel itself is a combination of two bacillus organisms, bacillus. Subtilis, otherwise known as Serenade, and Bacillus amyloliquefaciens, which is um, uh, known by a number of different trade names. But the interesting thing, even though it's a, considered to be a fungicide, um, those two Bacillus um, species are bacterial suppressants. So they may not kill the bacteria outright in the way that copper will, but they'll reduce the ability of that bacteria to grow and be successful on the surface of the plant. And so what I like to recommend and what I usually do is um, that if you've got a potential for fire blight infection, is to apply a, a light rate of copper and a light rate of these bacillus organisms um, to help reduce the, the erwinia bacteria that's on the surface of the plant. There's also some other more um, biologically driven um, uh, options that are out there one is called blossom protect and these are yeasts and beneficial fungi which uh, for all intensive purposes um, you're spraying onto the tree they'll grow just like any other type of you know microorganism will uh, but they're beneficial in that they can act as bacterial suppressants in some cases but they can also outcompete compete um, territorially um, for the, on the surface of the plant so that the Irwinia uh, just doesn't have a chance to ever uh, grow to any uh, uh, dangerous levels.
1: Gotcha. So I've got a few questions here. I'm just going to check with Gary in the studio. Gary, is it okay if we go a few minutes Absolutely. after? Absolutely. Sure. So just because I see our time is ticking away, but if, you, if you're okay, Mike, we're going to st- Our show will go on a little longer than usual, so we can cover everything. Wonderful. So we have an email here from Chuck. Chuck says, hi, Susan and Mike. Does Mike have any information online, such as a website we can go to? Happy New Year to you and your families from Vancouver, British Columbia. Thank you, Chuck. So uh, what would you say to Chuck about resources?
2: Um, Yes. Well, I do have a website, Know Your Roots dot com and that's know your roots with one r um, so there is a website there there's not a lot of uh, information posted there um, my wife and I are working on, on revising the website so that we can have more downloadable PDFs and that kind of thing but the best way for anybody to really stay in touch with what's going on in the field um, the changes through the season you know, recommendations that sort of stuff is to contact me directly And I can get them to, uh, I can get them signed up or subscribed to my newsletter, which follows the season um, and has, there's some opinion stuff in there, but most of it's horticulturally oriented so people understand, you know, what's going on out in the field and what they can do to deal with issues uh, in their region.
1: And also, everybody, um, Mike is going to give me a PDF uh, that I can put on the promotion for this show. So... Once I uh, put the show online as a podcast, I'll make sure the PDF is there for you guys to download, which has some extra information. Uh, We've got an email here from Dawn. Excellent advice today. Thank you. When planting new apple trees, are any pesticides needed at the beginning to prevent any diseases as a preventative measure? Um, And then (laughs) Dawn says, Portland, Oregon loves you. Happy New Year, Dawn. We love you, Dawn. Thank you. (laughs) Um,
2: Well, yes. So, you know, a typical way to spray is that you don't want to wait for problems to arise because then you're really dealing with um, a reactive approach. Now there are some insects and certainly some diseases where you know you don't want to be too trigger happy and and going out and spraying because you know you can't sleep at night or whatever um, but you certainly in some cases do want to be uh, ahead of the curve you know scab would be one of those cedar apple rust is another which is very important, and probably more in my in our neck of the woods is actually more important than apple scab um to be in front of. And so from a preventative standpoint, um, diseases are probably the most important thing because once you start to get those infections occurring, you know, they can start to spread within the tree, between trees, to your neighbor's trees, um, and you you, you need to be ahead of that. But you also don't want to just sort of blindly spray on a weekly basis because the pressures are not the same throughout the season, and the pressures certainly are not the same um, you know, from day to day or, or week to week. So understanding the life cycles of diseases can better guide your decision making when it comes to preventative sprays. Um, with with insects, it's a little bit different um, because you don't really you don't have the same potential to provide to, to prevent um, outbreaks. And we did talk about dormant sprays. Oils can be a good way to help reduce populations and prevent that. Codling moth. In season is one of the bigger um, larval pests of, of apples. It's known throughout North America. Um, it's particularly bad in the Pacific Northwest. Um, Washington State has a huge problem with it, and even though we know it in New York, um, you know our problems don't compare to what Washington State has. And from an organic standpoint, there are some preventative sprays that you can spray for uh, for coddling moth, which are very effective. Um, and they involve the use of a granulosis virus. And the granulosis virus is very specific, to, and it's something any, any, a consumer can buy. You could buy it from Arbico Organics online, or um, I, I'm not sure if Bonide has a similar one, but Arbico I know does sell, and some other online sites um, sell this granulosis virus. But it's very specific to codling moths, so it won't have any impact, say, on monarch butterflies or other beneficial larval species. Um, but you know, used appropriately in a preventative way, can keep codling moths from being an issue in your orchard. So, in some cases, yes, you can. There are preventative measures, but in a lot of cases, you you I mean, you definitely want to be aware of what the life cycles are, so you're treating at an appropriate timing. But in some cases, you may want to wait um, until you start to see the first insects um, before you treat for
1: them. Okay, dope. Well, let's do this. Let's take a few moments so that we can hear some words uh, from our sponsors who I so appreciate. Um, And then after the break, we have some more questions. And we'll talk about the growing season after blossom time, we're doing this season by season. So we're talking about organic fruit tree sprays. um, And Mike, are you okay staying on the line for another minute? Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, you guys are listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on realityradio101.com. I'm Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. And we're going to be back in just a few minutes.
3: In healthy soil, there's so much activity going on. Microorganisms thrive and good bacteria feed on sugars that seep out of plant and tree roots. In return, these bacteria transform nutrients in the soil into fertility that our plants can enjoy. But what if you don't have perfect soil? Those friendly bacteria may not be active and your plants and trees may not thrive. There is a solution though. Earth Alive Soil Activator is an organic biofertilizer that contains three carefully selected bacterial strains that will make nutrients in the soil available to your plants. And your plant or tree will thank you with better growth and a better harvest. Earth Alive Soil Activator has been shown to boost yields in crops including avocados, grapes, strawberries, and even guavas. Go to earthalivect.com to learn more about it and let our friendly bacteria bring your growing spaces back to life.
5: If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Wiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62 page full color catalog includes 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, in our catalogue, we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You can learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Aurora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalog. That's 519-669-1349. Wiffle Tree Nursery. Call us today.
0: Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board, send us an email right now. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. You're
1: listening to the European Forestry Radio Show brought to you by Stark Brothers Nursery. This is Reality Radio 101 and I'm your host Susan Poisner of the fruit tree care training website orchardpeople.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. My guest today is orchard consultant Mike Biltonen and we've been talking about organic fruit tree sprays that growers can use throughout the seasons. So far, we've talked about dormant sprays and blossom time sprays. And in just a minute, we'll cover what to use in the summer. But first, have you entered today's contest yet? To enter is really easy. If you're listening to the show live, just send us an email with your question or a comment to instudio101 at gmail.com. And you could win a copy of my award-winning fruit tree care book, Growing Urban Orchards. So send your email to instudio101 at gmail.com and remember to include your first name and where you're writing from. So Mike, oh my goodness, we have talked about so much so far. Uh, We talked about dormant sprays and we talked about blossom time sprays. Before we dive into growing season sprays, we've got another email from Aldo, who is from Toronto. And Aldo says, if you spray during the growing season and it rains either the same day or the next day, do you need to respray after the rainfall?
2: Well, that's a great question. Um, and the, the answer is it depends. So most chemicals that you're going to spray, um, you know, whether they're consumer over-the-counter or commercial, are formulated to withstand a certain amount of of rain and it's coming down just in sheets and whatnot. Typically most of your sprays will have a residue through and protect up to and through maybe an inch to an inch and a half of rain. So if you just get a little shower, a tenth of an inch of rain or whatever, a nice gentle summer shower, chances are that you do not have to to reapply. Now part of that is is that if you you also want to make sure that the spray has about two hours of drying time so that it fixes appropriately to the, the leaf in the tree. But if you get that that fixing time, that dry time that's required, and you don't get excessive rainfall um, or excessive rain conditions, your spray should be good through about an inch and a half of rain.
1: Great. Okay. And we have an email here from Bev. Bev says, Hi, Susan. This is Bev listening from Hornpain, Ontario. Love the show. Thank you for bringing us this interesting and informative topic. Happy New Year. Thank you, Bev. Okay, so we have um just about I'd say let's t- let's give ourselves Oh, we've got another one from Tara. Hi again, Susan and Mike. These sprays, are they available in Canada? Uh Bonide copper octonate, I can't pronounce that, and Bacillus organisms. Uh, Then she says, black knot infestation during blooming time, same type of spray. What about antibiotics such as tetracycline? Thank you again. Wonderful topic. And thank you so much for organizing this podcast. And that's from Tara in Erin, Ontario. So Tara's got a good few questions. So we will go through a couple of them quickly. Um, Are these sprays available in Canada? Um, I'll just answer this part. We may not have Bonide here, but we do have a lot of the sprays. They just are under different names. So we do have copper sprays. We do have bacillus sprays. Um, I don't know if you want to add something to that, Mike.
2: No, I don't. I, you know, it's, there are so many, well, I guess I'll add a little bit, is that there are so many different branded products out there that it's, it's important to know what the the active ingredient, the actual, you know, knowing that it's copper octanoate. So you know, it might not be able to find the trade name, but if you're looking for that active ingredient in another product, um, you know, you'll probably find it. And most of these are innocuous enough, and even though Canada has its own laws, you know, regarding, you know, pe- uh, chemical registration and labeling, um, that I, I'm 99% sure that they're going to be fairly um, easily available uh, in Canada, if not under one trade name, then under another.
1: And also, Tara, I want to say to you and to all the listeners, if you guys can hang in there about three months soon, I'm going to have an integrated pest management course go live on my website at orchardpeople.com workshops. So we are going to go into so much detail about all these things in that. If you're on my mailing list at orchardpeople.com, you'll find out as soon as the integrated pest management workshop goes live. So uh, the other questions were black knot infestation during blooming time. Should she spray for that?
2: Well, black knot's a very interesting fungal disease of stone fruit. Um, it doesn't infect all stone fruit. Um, you know, it it's, uh, will infect plums uh, to a great degree. You'll occasionally see it on some other stone fruit, but mostly it's just going to be a problem on plums and, and prunes. It's, there aren't any, and this even is on a very conventional, commercial scale, there aren't any good fungal products um, that you can apply that are going to give you 100% assurance that you're going to be uh, controlling it. But what I do know is, is that the, the period where the infection takes place for black knot um, is when the, the, the shoots, um, after they've grown a few inches in early spring, but before they started to develop kind of that woody exterior bark, the, the tissue has to be green uh, in, for, in order for the infections to occur. And so if you can, you can apply some copper um, or some, uh, even some sulfur at that time, and that will give you a modicum of protection against it. But the best protection against black knot is that if you see it, just cut it out and either throw it away or burn it, um, because if you don't have the inoculum, you can't get the infection. And because there are so few effective, well, there's almost there's no effective, 100% effective chemical controls, um, but because uh, there's just not a whole lot you can spray for it, sanitation and cultural techniques are the, the most important thing you can do.
1: So also we'll do just another quick, quick comment about her last question, which is what about antibiotics such as tetracycline?
2: Uh, Well, there's there are a number of antibiotic products that are out there. Um, The big problem is is that you know whether we're you know and it's not just in agriculture but in society in general um, we're running into some real problems with uh, antibiotic resistance and particularly with something like streptomycin, um, which is commonly used in conventional agriculture for the control of of fire blight. Um, There's Uh, oxytetracycline, um, which is also important. But these all are related to human uh, antibiotics. And the more we use them in the environment, um, the more it's going to drive up the resistance of of bacteria, both for humans and animals, but also for for fruit trees. There is one conventional antibiotic that is not related to any human uh, antibiotics, and it's called Kasugamycin, K-A-S-U-G-A-M-Y-C-I-N. It is a conventional product. Um, You would have to have a license to be able to get it. Um, But it is, from that perspective, it's safer to use. Uh, But typically, I'm I'm not recommending uh, antibiotics except in emergency situations, just because of the impact that they're having on resistant bacterial populations.
1: Oh, right. Well, thank you, Tara, for those great questions. So now I would say, Mike, we have about seven minutes left. <laughs> so let's talk about summer sprays. When we're talking about summer sprays, this is when you've got leaves on the tree, the fruit is starting to form. Can you give me a list of a few of the sprays that people might consider at that time of year?
2: Sure. So the to frame it a little bit the first 10 to 12 weeks of the season so from dormant until petal fall um, are when we're seeing everything start to waken up and be present in the orchard after petal fall and during those initial fruit uh, growth stages is when we're starting to see more of the summer insect and diseases that come out Um, now they're going to be different than the early season insect diseases some will be the same Uh, But the intensity, from an organic standpoint, tends to go down a little bit. You still need to be vigilant, uh, but it goes down a little bit. And you can be fairly regimented in your approach. I already mentioned granulosis for codling moth. That's one product that could be used. Um, Dipel uh, or uh, any Bacillus thuringiensis product um, can be used to help control other larval organisms like oblique-banded leaf roller, green fruit worms, oriental fruit moths, coving moth to some degree. Um, and then there's also Entrust, or a spinosad insecticide, uh, which is also uh, an important part of that overall rotation. And I think when those are used in conjunction with a kaolin clay product like Surround, um, they can provide a very robust insect control uh, program and keep everything at fairly low levels. Um, when you get later into the season, and again, depending on where you are, you know it could be mid-July to early August, you're going to see something um, come out called uh, apple maggot fly. And those can be controlled uh, organically using red sticky spheres and lures and just trapping them out. But Entrust or a spinosad insecticide and surround will also keep um, any potential apple maggot problems um, at, a, at a fairly low level. Um, one final you know, product that's out there are the pyrethrums or pyrethroids. Pyganic is probably the most common or popular of the organic uh, pyrethroid products that are out there. Um, they tend not to be as powerful as spinosids, but they can, in a, when used in a rotational perspective, um, you know they can also provide a lot of protection against some insect pests um, aphids, leafhoppers, that kind of stuff. Um, and then from a disease control standpoint, unless there's some really, unless there's specific issues that somebody is dealing with, again, I go back to the bacillus products plus a copper um, every 10 to 14 days throughout the growing season just to provide some fungal protection.
1: So a lot of those products we talked in the beginning, like the copper, you have to have the right type of copper, you have to have it, you know, the right strength. But it sounds like copper is one of those ones you can use throughout the growing season, if it's appropriate. Um, Because you've mentioned a few things, uh, again, so is that the case that some of these ones like, would you ever use horticultural oil during the growing season?
2: Um, You could. There are some very um, highly refined horticultural oils. Uh, One branded product is called JMS Flowers. Uh, I believe they're out of Florida, but it's fairly common uh, on the market. It's a very clean uh, horticultural oil that doesn't have the potential for phytotoxicity, again, unless it's misused, but it can provide some benefit for piercing-sucking insects like leafhoppers, and aphids and mites, you can get some control with it um, during the summer. So horticultural oil, um, a, a, a refined horticultural oil or a stylet oil, is, as we call it, uh, can be also used in rotation with those other products.
1: So, Mike, i got to say thank you so much. We have, during the show, we've, we've covered a lot of stuff. Um, To give people an idea of, for instance, the importance of dormant oil sprays, you know, just when we think we should be putting up our feet and relaxing, that's kind of time that we should also be doing more work on our trees. And also just to get a big picture of what is involved in spraying. So I I really appreciate you being able to touch upon um, this topic. So again, let's tell people how they can get more information. I am going to have a PDF on... Uh, the link for this show on orchardpeople.com. If you go to com slash podcasts and you find this show, um, there will be a PDF from Mike with some more information. Are there any other resources you would suggest, Mike, to help people if they want to create their own spray schedule that works for them and the problems they have in their orchard? Sure.
2: Uh, I mean, you know, again... My newsletter is a really good resource. I also have uh, that one document that I sent you as part of a larger course um, offering that I have, which is not all about insect and disease management, but there is some other, there's some other things in there that might be useful to people. Um, I would say that any, uh, especially Michael Phillips's first two books, um, are very helpful um, in that regard for growers who are interested in organic and especially holistic um, apple growing. Uh, from a more sort of academic approach. Um, most land-grant universities, and you know, given that I'm a stone's throw from Cornell, I, I kind of lean on, on what they, they publish. But they do have a Tree Fruit Guidelines publication that comes that's revised and, and released every year prior to the start of the season. The first part of that book has some really good foundational stuff, just about IPM, spraying technology, et cetera. And the second half has um, even though it's not a recipe per se, it's a list of materials that are available for different insects um, and diseases. Now, it's more oriented to the commercial grower, so there's conventional materials in there, but they're also including a lot of um, organic materials um, as well in their, in their guidelines as well. And then uh, lastly, or, uh, Cornell, even though it's, it's going to be revised over the next year or two, but there is a free online organic apple growing publication that Cornell published about 10 years ago that's also a really good background resource. Now, it doesn't have up-to-date information on sprays and stuff, but it gives good information on varietal susceptibility, rootstock susceptibilities, um, etc. cetera. Um, so for the beginning organic grower, that, that's also a good place to start. Um, and then there's, there are a number of other books that are out there, but those are kind of my go-tos when people want to know how do I get started with organic orcharding that's where I point
1: them. Wonderful. And also, I want to remind everybody, I have courses at OrchardPeople.com, and I am so excited to be launching the Integrated Pest Management course course soon. So there will that be that for you as well. Now, Mike, will you help me? I've got everybody's names here in a little bucket. You can hear this. So, Mike, at some point, can you say the word stop? And whichever name is in my hand will be the winner of the prize today. So when you're ready, say the word. Stop. Ah, okay. Good. So let's see who won a copy of my book, Growing Urban Orchards. It is Dawn from Portland, Oregon. Thank you, Dawn, so much for writing in today. You have won a copy of my book. We're going to send it off to you, and we are so happy you participated. So, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We'll have to have you back. We'll talk about lots of different stuff with you next time.
2: Awesome. I
1: love it. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Orchard Consultant Mike Biltonen of Know Your Roots in Finger Lakes, New York. Now, we're at the end of the show, and I would love to ask you guys a huge favor. If you like this show, and if you're a regular listener, I would love it if you could rate or review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or whichever podcaster that you use to get your podcasts. That would be so helpful for me. There are so many podcasts out there, so shows that have been highly rated, um, they'll be more likely to be found by new listeners. So I'd love it if you could rate the show on iTunes or your favorite podcaster, podcatcher. Thank you so much for your help. And that is it for today's extra long and extra powerful episode of the Urban Forestry Radio Show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to listen again or download other episodes, you can find them at orchardpeople.com slash podcast. If you want to learn about my book, go to orchardpeople.com slash book. And if you're interested in online courses, go to orchardpeople.com slash workshops. You've been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show. This is Reality Radio 101. And I'm Susan Poizner from orchardpeople.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Happy New Year, everybody. And I look forward to digging into lots of new fruit tree care topics with you guys all next month and next year. Thank you so much. Happy New Year, everybody. been listening to the Urban Forestry radio show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com/podcast. The show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month, and each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to OrchardPeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at @urbanfruittrees. Trees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again.